Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. Today we are talking about the jewels of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary is a figure shrouded in the mists of history, and she remains one of the most compelling and controversial monarchs of the 16th century. She was born into the turbulent world of Tudor and Stuart rivalry. Her life was filled with intrigue, drama, and tragedy. From her early ascension to the Scottish throne as an infant, to her eventual execution by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I of England, Mary's story is one of power, betrayal, and unyielding spirit. Central to her legacy, beyond the political upheavals and personal trials, were her jewels. Far more than just adornments, these pieces were emblematic of her royal status, tools of diplomacy, and deeply personal treasures that accompanied her through the highs and lows of her life. In this video, we're going to talk about the glittering story of some of Mary's jewels, offering a glimpse into her opulent world and the profound sentiment that these gems harbored. So in the first part, we're going to talk about the French connection. The narrative of Mary is inseparably intertwined with France, where she spent her formative years at the dazzling court of the Valois. These years were not just about political grooming, but also about cultivating a refined taste that mirrored the luxurious French court. Mary's collection of jewels, a testament to this period, was both a reflection of her royal stature and a personal indulgence. Among the treasures she acquired was a remarkable pendant crafted by John Mosman, an exquisite piece made from Scottish gold, symbolizing her connection to her homeland while embracing her French influences. 
The French court, known for its opulence, played a pivotal role in shaping Mary's aesthetic inclinations. Renowned Parisian jewelers such as the skilled Robert Manjot and, I'm going to butcher it, sorry in advance, Maturine Lousseau, fashioned pieces that were the epitome of Renaissance artistry, blending precious metals and stones with unparalleled craftsmanship. These pieces were not just accessories, but carried with them the stories of love alliances and Mary's own identity as a queen who navigated the complexities of two realms. Next, we're going to talk about jewels that were symbols of her power and diplomacy. Upon her marriage to Francis II, Mary's jewels transcended personal adornment, becoming potent symbols of power and diplomatic currency. The illustrious Egg of Naples, a magnificent ruby suspended from her necklace, was not just a statement of royal opulence, but also a symbol of the interconnected web of European royalty and alliances. This jewel, along with others like the intricately designed brooches studded with precious stones, served as more than mere embellishments. They were tools of statecraft. Mary adeptly used these jewels in diplomatic exchanges, gifting them to forge and strengthen alliances to reward loyalty or to sway political opinion. Such gestures were language of their own, conveying messages of favor, intent, and royal grace. In the intricate dance of Renaissance politics, Mary's jewels were her silent envoys, weaving together the alliances, intrigues, and influences that stretched across the courts of Europe. Next up, let's talk about the Scottish regalia. Returning to Scotland, Mary found herself in a realm fraught with religious and political strife, a stark contrast to the sheer elegance of the French court. Yet her jewels continued to play a crucial role, reflecting her royal authority and resilience amidst the turmoil. Pearls, emblematic of purity and regal authority, featured prominently in her Scottish adornment, which echoes the traditional Scottish regalia. These native gems, along with other precious stones, were not merely decorative. They were a visual assertion of her sovereignty and her divine right to rule. Amidst the challenges of her reign, Mary's strategic use of her jewels to maintain and display her queenly dignity was a testament to her understanding of the power of royal imagery. Her efforts to sustain the splendor of the monarchy through her personal appearance, even in challenges and times of strife, underscored her spirit, the indomitable spirit of a queen determined to uphold her crown's honor and legacy. Next, let's talk about the period when she was imprisoned and intriguing in England. During her imprisonment in England, Mary's jewels became poignant symbols of her lost freedom and sovereignty. Some pieces remained with her, closely guarded treasures that offered a semblance of past glories and personal solace. Others, however, were lost to the demands of survival, sold or pledged to secure the loyalty of supporters or to fund her cause. Among the jewels that retained personal significance during these years were the rings she exchanged with Elizabeth, fraught tokens of the complex bond between these two queens. These rings, often imbued with secret messages and symbols, were not just personal jewels, but also carried the weight of political intrigue and the fragile hopes of a queen in captivity. And now let's talk about the legacy of Mary's jewels. After her tragic end, her jewels scattered across the courts and collections of Europe, each piece carrying a fragment of her story. 
Some of these precious items have been lost to history, their whereabouts unknown, while others are in museums or private collections, treasured as rare connections to a queen whose life continues to captivate. Let's talk about some specific jewels that we still have. There's the Pennycook jewels. Traditionally believed to have belonged to Mary, these jewels include a necklace, locket, and pendant, possibly given to one of her ladies-in-waiting, Lady Mowbray. And you can still see part of these jewels at the National Museum of Scotland. Then there's the Lennox jewel. Although not directly owned by Mary, this jewel is intricately connected to her story through her mother-in-law, Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox. The Lennox jewel is a locket filled with symbolic imagery and inscriptions reflecting the hopes and claims of Mary's son, James VI, to the English throne. This piece is part of the royal collection and is displayed at Holyrood Palace. Then there's the Eglinton Peru, a necklace traditionally believed to have been a gift from Mary to one of her other Marys, Mary Seton. This piece was split into two in the 17th century. One part is in the National Museum of Scotland, The other is held by the Royal Collection at Holyrood Palace. And there's Mary's rosary and crucifix, which was worn at her execution. These items are said to have been bequeathed to Anne Dacre, Countess of Arundel, and are kept at Arundel Castle. The rosary and crucifix are significant, of course, as they symbolize Mary's Catholic faith, which played a central role in her life and political narrative. The jewels of Mary, Queen of Scots, offer us a unique window into her past, bridging centuries and bringing the story of a remarkable woman to life. As we reflect on the enduring legacy of Mary and her jewels, we are reminded of the power of objects to evoke the human stories at the heart of history, connecting us with the vibrant lived experiences of those who came before us. Today, we are talking about When the calendar changed and everybody got confused because they didn't know what year it was. And you know how you get really confused during daylight savings time when you switch or like this year is a leap year, I think. And like that's going to confuse us. Well, imagine losing 10 days and like a whole year. So we're going to talk about that because that happened in the 16th century and people were very confused. So today we are going to be talking about the monumental shift. From the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, which happened in 1582, it was a change that literally redefined dates and years and how we perceive time. So I'm actually really interested in this concept of keeping time. And I've done a podcast episode on clocks and how our perception of time changes once we put a name on it. You know, there was this whole distinction before there were hours Um, And before there was, you know, I'll meet you at 10 o'clock and 10 o'clock is exactly 10 o'clock and you hop on your Zoom call at 10 o'clock when people would meet at dawn or people would meet in the evening and things were much more like fluid. Um, Also, interestingly, they used to divide up days and nights 12 hours evenly. So day was 12 hours and night was 12 hours. Okay, that's great. Except like in the height of summer in England, when the sun rises at what, like four and sets at like 11 there's only like five six hours of nighttime that was divided into 12 hours and then the daytime 18 hours of daytime was divided into 12 hours so hours were really super long during the day and really super short at night and then of course the inverse would happen in the winter i'm fascinated by this i've always been fascinated by this i nerd out looking at the daylight map 
before like now all your devices like my ipad and stuff comes with daylight maps like in the clock and it shows you where it's light before that was like a regular thing i found daylightmap.com like back in like 2005 or something and i just used to nerd out on that all the time and i especially loved looking at it like on the equinox when it was just a straight line because everything was equal Anyway, I'm very interested in this because it's also another way of thinking about how technology changes our brain. I'm going down a rabbit hole here, you guys, but bear with me because we will come out the other side, I promise. But I read a lot because I'm a mom and I'm interested in how social media, especially, and technology and the internet is literally changing our brain, Um, changing our concentration span, changing uh, how we perceive things to be important or not important. Um, just changing the way we interact with information. And so you might think that this, this is the first time that we're living through these massive technological changes, but we actually have lived through it before as a species. And that, well, I mean, I'm sure there have been many times, right? Fire was an invention that changed how we interact with the world around us and our brains, but also clocks. Because until you have a defined way of being able to tell time, and until you know that your 10 o'clock in the morning is everybody else's 10 o'clock in the morning, at least in your time zone, right? Until you get time zones, like all of that, it changes the way you think about time. It changes the way you think about productivity. It changes the way your brain thinks about even your work being paid by the hour as opposed to just going out and working in the field until it gets dark. Anyway, so I'm I'm very interested in in this whole kind of change in timekeeping and what that did to our brains. That is my nerd out. I will put a link to my episode on clocks in the notes if you want to also nerd out on that with me. We can nerd out on it together. I'm always down for a discussion on this. Like, I wish I had more people in my life that I could discuss clocks and timekeeping and the changes it makes your brain with. There's not a lot of people who want to talk about that with me. If you would like to, I would like to talk about that with you. So the Julian calendar was named after Julius Caesar was the standard in Europe for over 1,600 years. It was introduced in 45 BC. It was a significant improvement over its Roman predecessor, um, which only had like 10 months, right? And that's why the months are all weird at the end. Um, December is the 12th month, but December comes from the, well, Spanish dieth, right? Um, Which is 10, right? November, nove, nine. Um, October, Oche, Ochenta, eight. It's all it's all off. October's the tenth month, but it comes from the word because it only had those ten months. And so that also is another thing we can nerd out on. Let's leave that for now because this is not a Roman history channel. Um, and I'm not an expert in that. And someone will probably tell me in the comments that I did it all wrong just now. And that's fine. You can feel free to do that. So we will leave that uh, for someone else to do. And we will talk about what has happened now when we have come to the 16th century. Its year was slightly longer than the actual solar year. Um, And this discrepancy caused a lot of issues, particularly for religious festivals, particularly for Easter. Easter, of course, is determined by the vernal equinox. And so it began to drift away from its intended time, which was in spring and rebirth and all of that, um, you would actually have Easter celebrations that were in winter, which led to a lot of confusion among those who were faithful and celebrating Easter in the snow. So in the early 16th century, Pope Leo X 
recognized that there was a need for reform. He called upon all of the European rulers to send astronomers to Rome to devise a solution. However, the response was a little bit, eh. Even Henry VIII, who was still in the Pope's good graces at this time, didn't prioritize this celestial conundrum. The urgency of calendar reform was lost in the labyrinth of the political and religious upheaval that was sweeping across Europe throughout the 16th century. So fast forward to the end of the 16th century, and we have Pope Gregory XIII. He had a personal quest for calendar correction, and this quest kind of gained momentum and interest. So the Pope commissioned a group of scientists, including the Italian Luigi Lilio and the Jesuit mathematician Christopher Clavius to develop a new, more accurate calendar. And their solution was both elegant and practical. They addressed the solar year's miscalculation because it's actually 365 and a quarter days that it takes the sun to go, the sun to go around the earth. I'm, I'm heliocentric. Um, the earth to go around the sun. So that's why we have a leap year every four years to to make up for that fact that, that we get a quarter day. Um, so that's where the leap year comes from. Anyway, that was the kind of the solution that they came up with. And in 1582, the Gregorian calendar went into effect. It was a bold leap for timekeeping because they decided to make up for all of the errors that had happened up until that point that they would eliminate 10 days from the calendar. So. In March and November, we lose an hour and our circadian rhythms are all messed up for like a week after that. They lost 10 days. So this was a, a dramatic adjustment that was necessary um, for astronomical precision. But it was met with a mix of wonder and confusion and skepticism across Europe. Can you imagine trying to pass that today? Trying to tell people like, okay, you're going to lose 10 days out of your year. So some people even made fun of it. There were, there was cartoons about, it. you know, imagine waking up, they lost 10 days in October. So they went to bed on the 4th and they woke up on the 15th of October. Imagine just losing 10 days like that of your life and finding 10 days had just vanished overnight. It was a surreal experience that sparked a range of reactions. In some regions, people feared the loss of their lives, not just in days, because superstitions and misunderstandings abounded. There's a tale of a group in Italy who, upon hearing of the calendar change, feared their lives would be shortened by 10 days and started protesting about that. Also humorous anecdotes, anecdotes, also humorous anecdotes. Um, in one village, a man joked that he had enjoyed the shortest engagement in history, having proposed to his beloved on the 4th and married her the very next day, on October 15th. Such stories highlight the blend of confusion and adaptation as people navigated this temporal shift. But hey, I want to interrupt this fascinating story on timekeeping to tell you about this beautiful journal that is perfect for Valentine's Day to give yourself or anyone else that you love. Um, it's this gorgeous medieval heart, um, heart-shaped Valentine that it's 16th century Italian, this Valentine, and it's a journal and I made it and you can get it at my shop. It's narrow ruled pages. And the thing is, it's got quotes in that are love quotes, lots of Shakespeare, but also quotes from Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn, 
in that cache of 1527 love letters that Henry wrote to Anne. It's got all these quotes in it from Henry to Anne and Shakespeare, and it's just a really pretty journal to write your thoughts in. Um, you can get it at my shop. And if you want it for Valentine's Day, you should order it soonish because it is all print on demand and it does take a little bit of time to print. So the Henry VIII Anne Boleyn Love Letter Journal, you can get it at my shop. Tudorfair.com. The adoption of the Gregorian calendar was anything but uniform, leading to a lot of confusion throughout Europe. Catholic countries like Spain and Portugal and Italy were quick to adopt the new calendar while Protestant and Orthodox regions initially resisted, viewing it as a papal imposition. Not going to have that Pope tell me what to do. Mm. And so this actually led to a myriad of complications, especially in international affairs. I know, like, because Europe changes clocks at a different time, I think it's a week earlier than the U.S. Well, it's a week earlier in the spring and a week later in the autumn. There's like a week there where I'm confused about what time it is to call my friends in England or in Spain where I used to live. Um, and it's like they're six hours and seven hours ahead of me, whereas before they're five and six. It's all very confusing. So, for example, when France, which had adopted the Gregorian calendar, corresponded with England, which was still using the Julian calendar, the 10-day discrepancy caused significant confusion. An English merchant receiving a letter dated October 15th from France might have still been thinking of, you know, living in October 5th, leading to missed deadlines and bewildering exchanges. Travelers crossing borders between countries using different calendars experienced a peculiar form of time travel, stepping backward in or forward in time as they moved across Europe. It's like when I went to New Zealand and came back before I left because you crossed the date line. So you lose a day going and then when you come back, you gain. So I left at Saturday on Saturday at like four o'clock and I got back at Saturday at two o'clock. It's really weird. So imagine doing that for 10 days. That would be really, really bewildering. The journey toward the universally accepted Gregorian calendar was slow and staggered. The German states and the Netherlands eventually shifted in the 17th century, recognizing the practical benefits of a standardized calendar throughout Europe. Great Britain actually managed to hold out until 1752, a decision influenced more by international trade and politics than by any religious resistance. When it finally adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1752, it marked a significant step in the global standardization of time. The British Empire at that point was expanding too, right? 1752 going into the 19th century. And that allowed further spread of the Gregorian calendar as Britain kind of moved into these other territories and their influence extended beyond the Americas and to Africa and Asia. So that by the 19th and 20th century, the Gregorian calendar had become the global standard, um, which we still use today. It's a testament to the interconnectedness of science, politics, and daily life shaping our understanding of time. The switch from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar was more than just a technical adjustment. Like I said, it, it profoundly influenced per people's perceptions of time and its place in their daily lives. This, you know, before people didn't necessarily know what day they were born on. A lot of times there would be cases where wills had to be read and 
people didn't know what their birthday was. And sometimes they'd have to talk to a midwife to find out if she could remember. They knew like seasons. They didn't know what year. Time really meant something different to people in the medieval period and the pre-modern period than it means to us today. Today, you know, I measure my life in hours, in minutes. I've got my planner right here, right? Where I write all my stuff to do and it's on calendars and by the hour. And, you know, it means something very different to us than it would have meant to a merchant or a farmer in medieval England. So this change really symbolized the broader transition from the medieval period to the modern era. In the medieval period, time was fluid. The rhythms of agriculture, of the church, are what kind of ruled people's perceptions of time. The calendar brought this new precision to timekeeping, aligning it more closely with the celestial movements of the seasons. This shift also mirrored the broader Renaissance embrace of science and exploration and a more global perspective. For common people, the new calendar was a tangible manifestation of the changing times an era where science began to challenge tradition and authority. And it was a step towards a period in which time and even then, by extension, life itself could be predicted and could be controlled, really, with greater accuracy. So I invite you to share any anecdotes, any thoughts you might have about losing 10 days. What would that be like? Can you even imagine? Weird, right? Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco, you will find me there. And we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Blow northern wind, a baby sweating. Blow northern wind.